Oh, jeez. Here's the second one. It's in the head and the hand there. I guess that's a defensive wound. Oh, yeah. Where's the state trooper? Back there, a good piece in the ditch next to his prowler. Okay. So we got a trooper pull someone over. We got a shooting. These folks drive by. There's a high-speed pursuit. Ends here, and then this execution-type deal. Yeah. 20 years ago this month, the Coen brothers' sixth film, Fargo, competed at the Cannes Film Festival. It was their second time back in the Corsette since their triumph in 1991, when Barton Fink was awarded the Palme d'Or. But while Barton Fink examined a man struggling to write a story, the brothers had no such problem in finding it in Fargo. The reason for that, they said, is because the film was based on fact. It opens with the statement, This is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. Back in 1996, the internet was still in its infancy. AltaVista and Yahoo were the leading search engines, while Google only existed as backrub. But that wasn't the problem. The problem back then was the lack of data for the engines to search. If you weren't around Minnesota in 1987, verifying the authenticity of the Cohen statement was pretty much hearsay and conjecture. So much conjecture and so little authenticity that soon people were wondering if this were yet another series of gags the brothers were playing on the audience. Their previous five features came layered with in-jokes, wily references and an unaccountable name in the credits. For the third time, Roderick James was listed as editor. Those in the know knew James didn't exist, serving instead as a nom de plume. Or in this case, the Coen's nom de montage. The joke is an open secret now, but it could all end in real laughter if one day a film of theirs is honoured with the Academy Award for Best Editing. Already, Roderick James has been nominated twice, so a third time could be just the charm. Damn it, I want to be a part of this thing. No, Wade, they were real clear. They said they'd call tomorrow with instructions and it's got to be delivered by me alone. It's my money, I'll deliver it. What do they care? Wade's got a point there. I'll handle the call if you want, Jerry. No, no, see, they no, see, they only deal with me. You, you feel this, this nervousness on the phone there? They're very... These guys are dangerous. It turns out that the Coen brothers' statement at the beginning of the film is partially true. If not based on a single story, it appears to be an amalgamation of several emanating from the mid-1980s. The strongest one centering on the disappearance of a Danish former flight attendant, Helle Crafts. Married and living with her husband Richard and three children in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Mrs. Crafts vanished from her home in November 1986. Her remains were found a month later at a nearby lake. She had been fed through a wood chipper. After an initial mistrial, Richard Crafts was found guilty of her murder and sentenced to 50 years in the state penitentiary. Then, in 2001, the Cohen's fusion of fact and fiction became very meta, when Takako Kunishi, a Japanese office worker, became convinced that she could figure out the whereabouts of the ransom money left in the suitcase on the snowbound side of one of Minnesota's highways. When Kunishi was found dead near a lake in Michigan, the media made out that she had been in search of the missing money. But that is not true. Konishi had recently lost her job in Tokyo, had become depressed, and returning to the place where she had once spent time with her American boyfriend, 
she took her own life. The alleged Fargo connection had sprung up because of an innocent conversation Kanishi had had about the film with the state trooper. So do you remember getting a call Wednesday night? No. You do reside there at 1425 Fremont Terrace? Yep. Anyone else residing there? No. Well, Mr. Proudfoot, this call came in past three in the morning. It's just hard for me to believe you don't remember anyone calling. Now, I know you've had some problems. Struggling with the narcotics, some other entanglements, currently on parole. So? Well, associating with criminals, if you're the one they talk to, that right there would be a violation of your parole. But does any of that give us any indication as to why the film is so good? Of course not. Well, a little. People taking writing classes are often told to write about what they know. So, what do the Coens know about kidnapping, ransoms and woodchippers? I hope only from reading about it. Mostly, though, their knowledge comes from observing human nature. Seeing what makes people tick helps them create the characters that drive their stories. As for the remainder, scriptwriting gurus claim it comes from studying form and structure. The 1990s saw an explosion of books explaining the rules of storytelling. There have been a few in the 80s, most notably by Sid Field and Michael Haig. But if you examine all the great films, you will find that they each violate at least one of the rules. And sometimes part of what makes the screenplay great is the way writers figure out how to tell their stories. They don't rigidly adhere to the templates set down by others. For instance, mentors encourage writers to introduce their protagonist as soon as possible. Page one, scene one, first line preferably. Get the ball rolling as quickly as possible and let the audience know who to root for. And the Coens do. They start with Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy, on his way to arrange for his wife's kidnapping. So, we all set on this thing then? Sure, Jerry, we're all set. Why wouldn't we be? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure you are. Shep vouched for you and all. I got every confidence here in you fellas. I, I guess that's it then. Here are the keys. No, that's the not it, Jerry. Huh? The new vehicle plus $40,000. Yeah, but the deal was the car first, then the 40000 like as if it was the ransom. However, it is only after the kidnappers encounter the first of several unexpected glitches, by which I mean murders, that the Coens finally decide to introduce us to Marge Gunderson, played by Frances McDormand. Despite being seven months pregnant, Marge leads the investigation, and so it becomes clear that she, not Jerry, is the person we are rooting for. Which, under the strict definition of character analysis, defies the edicts laid down in so many books. Marge is not the protagonist, but the nemesis. Sounds pedantic, but I mention it only to point out that for each story there is, there are a near infinite number of ways for you to tell it. The challenge is figuring out which way works best. To paraphrase David Fincher, there are only two ways to tell your story, and one of them is wrong. Swapping the structures of Fargo and Pulp Fiction would ruin both. Structure affects the story itself, which may go some way to explain the unique nature of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. I don't understand what I'm looking at. Why am I standing here and, oh my God, deja vu. Deja vu. This is so... I think we should get started if we want to get the procedure on the way tonight. I some work to do. I mean, my hair already hurt. I suppose so. Uh, this is about right. This is what it... This is what it would look like. Very good. We'll dispose of these mementos when we're done here. 
That way you won't be confused later by their unexplainable quests in your home. So even though the Coens frequently work within the crime genre, and even though here they claim to be working within the subgenre of true crime, they just as frequently mimic, mock, subvert, defy, and redefine the conventions. Further, with the exception of a few Ealing comedies such as The Lady Killers or The Lavender Hill Mob, criminals are usually male, smart, and move quickly, while the women are frequently outmaneuvered. While that cannot be applied to Fargo, the other difference here is that the woman is not criminally minded. More subversion of gender expectation can be found in Marge's husband, Norm, played by John Carroll Lynch. He is the homemaker. Domesticated as he may be, Norm is clearly diligent, decent, and not at all dim, whereas the rest of the men are bumbling idiots. Take Jerry, whose get-rich-quick scheme kickstarts the plot. He is nothing more than failure in a tweed hat. Inept, inert, and impotent, he is belittled by everyone around him. His wife, his son, his father-in-law, his erstwhile associates. Even Marge, who is willing to cut everyone some slack, reprimands him on his manners. I'm sorry, sir. Ma'am, I answered your question. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here, and there, uh, there's no... Uh... Sir, you have no call to get snippy with me. I'm just doing my job here. I'm... I'm not, uh, I, I'm not arguing here. I'm cooperating, and there's no, we're doing all we can. Sir, could I talk to Mr. Gesterson? Yes, in Fargo, the Cones penchant for subverting genre conventions fell into very sharp focus. Just how subverting can be found in James Motchin's book, Published in 2000, Mocham astutely categorised Fargo as not film noir, but film blanc, a riff on the phrase French film critic Nina Franck coined in 1946 to describe the shift in visual style American cinema underwent during World War II. Mocham was, of course, referring to how the Coens used the vast Minnesotan snowscapes. Where film noir was happy to share time with its gallery of shady characters, in Fargo the bad people are at worst repellent and at best downright stupid. In stark contrast, Marge and Norm are good people, happy to work hard and earn their crust. And the Coens find the perfect moment to end not only the film, and indeed anchor its moral code, but also provide a grace note for the expectant couple. It's in the small things, and how much smaller can you get than a three cent stamp? Remember, there was near to a million dollars lying on a briefcase somewhere out on the I-35. That it is lost in the snowy wastes illustrates the fracture, chaos and mayhem crime brings. By contrast, stamps are needed for the postal service to work, and the delivery of the mail is emblematic of a social cohesion. Marge and Norm are that rare thing in the Coen's films. Paragons of virtue, shining beacons of hope and decency, as pure as the driven snow. As for everyone else, they are in lustful pursuit of a quick buck. No surprise then that the landscape ends up so stained with blood. So that was Mrs. Lundegaard on the floor in there. And I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper. And those three people in Brainerd. And for what? for a little bit of money. 
There's more to life than a little money, you know. With the exceptions of a few titles, Out of the Past, They Live by Night, The Night of the Hunter and On Dangerous Ground, almost all films in the noir cycle are set in the city. Yet, while the city was depicted as a jungle, it was really only the inhabitants who made it dangerous. In Fargo, the environment itself is hostile. It is cloudy and with so much snow, oftentimes the horizon is obscured, which works as a perfect metaphor for the way the villains cannot see right from wrong, up from down, heaven from earth. The financials are pretty thorough, so the only thing we don't know is your fee. My fee? Wade, what the heck are you talking about? Stan and I are okay. Yeah? We're good to load in. Yeah? But we never talked about your fee for bringing it to us. No, but Wade, see, I was bringing you this deal for you to loan me the money to put in. It's my deal here, see? Jerry, we thought you were bringing us an investment. Yeah, right. You're saying... What are you saying? As the years roll by and the Coens roll out new films, Fargo has increasingly become a linchpin in their canon. When it was released, many people saw similarities with their debut feature Blood Simple. Its straightforward schemes, undone by double crosses worthy of Dashiell Hammett, culminating in cases of not grave robbing, but grave digging. Although Fargo doesn't do that, the execution-type deal on the side of the highway certainly echoed it. And then, when they made No Country for Old Men, Sheriff Tom Bell, played by Tommy Lee Jones, seems to retain the same healthy disregard for money as Marge does. They could be distant cousins. Almost everyone in their adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's novel is figuratively stained with the same green desire for cash. And while Anton Chigurh uses a homing device to track it down, the irony is that it's the money that seeks out greedy people and kills them. Here last week they found this couple out in California. They rent out rooms to old people, kill them, bury them in the yard, cash their social security checks. The thing to note about the Coens is just how economical they are in telling stories. I don't mean financially, I mean in terms of narrative. Structure. Yes, there I said it. But consider this. Fargo runs for 98 minutes. Take out the opening and closing credits, and it runs for 93 minutes. Back in the 1990s, that was the length of a TV movie. Yes, FX have adapted their film into a long-running TV format. But I mention the film's running time only to underline how much the brothers cram. No, that's not the right word. And neither is stuff or pack or put, fit, no, sit into their pictures. How much the brothers sit into their pictures. More often than not, everything finds its perfect space and time. All of which means the Coens are editing their films long before they hand them over to Roderick James. 